I'm reading two scriptures. The first one is in Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 through 46. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. The second verse is Mark chapter 13, 41 through 44. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his, yeah, calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. I know that uh, it's not necessarily on your common route, and to a certain extent it may not be on the way to anywhere that you're going. Uh, some of you may have even said, can anything good be found in Abilene? Of course, those of us who are grads would say, of course there's something good that can be found in Abilene. Uh, about a decade ago, um, the, the school, and uh, particularly several benefactors, uh, decided that they wanted to put a, a, a symbolic and powerfully um, spiritual uh, piece of art connected to uh, a Bible building that's been there for a few decades now. This is called Jacob's Dream. Um, it is a sculpture that's found just east of the Bible building. If you come into the campus the way that Google would uh, direct you, you'll come right in the, the main campus drive, and this is just off to your left. Uh, this picture is taken uh, early one morning when the sky was clear in West Texas, which can be a fairly common kind of thing. It is uh, not only a beautiful piece of art to see, but it is a powerful um, place of meditation and reflection. Um, they have arranged the, the centerpiece uh, of the, the angels uh, ascending and descending the ladder uh, among stones and have uh, at different levels and uh, quite literally as you walk around it and walk through it, uh, you see different things. One, you, you may or may not be able to see it because of where the horizon is, but from exactly this angle you can see how the stones make a cross um, that, that you could walk in under a, a gateway to walk through, walking through the cross. The cross disappears if you move just a few feet one way or another way. There are scriptures written on, on the limestone, and, and in the process of, of walking, you, you the, the scriptures come to you in different ways and different orders, and to a certain extent you can uh, connect them in a, in a unique pattern. It's a place of reflection, a place of meditation. And in the center of it, at the very base of, of the main statuary, there is an outdoor baptistry, which is used um, uh, quite, quite a lot. A lot of students have decided they want to give their life to God in that way. Not only is the whole a profound experience, again, being there is a profound experience. It's, it's less profound when the students are being very, very loud around it. I guess that would be the way to say it. But when you can find those times of silence early in the morning, late in the evening, it, uh, it can be quite profound. Not only is the whole, but um, there's an incredible artistic quality the closer you get to the, to the, to the statue itself. 
his name is Jack Maxwell. He's the one who designed the, the centerpiece. Uh, there were others that participated in the arrangement of the stones and putting the entire uh, place together, but Jack Maxwell put together a, a really profoundly beautiful uh, piece of sculpture. Um, it, it doesn't rival the Pieta. If you get to go to Rome someday and see Michelangelo's the Pieta and uh, the stone is there and you would think that it's fabric that so flows so beautifully. It's not that level, but it, it still has an incredible artistic quality. And maybe my favorite part is when you look to the very top, um, the last angel, the uppermost angel, is reaching for a step that's not there, reaching for God in a very sort of powerful way. Um, I, I would almost say that it would be worth the trip to Abilene to get to sit there for an hour or so and enjoy it. It connects us to a story. It connects us to a story of a profound uh, interest to us. It's a story that probably most of us have heard from our childhood, a story from uh, Genesis chapter 28. And I guess it's, it's very familiar to you. It's not a short reading, but we're going to read through it. And my guess is, uh, you know parts of the story, but you may not know where the story ends. And so read along with me. Starting at verse 12 in chapter 28. And he dreamed that there was a ladder set up on earth. The top of it reaching to heaven and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And the Lord shouted beside him and said, I am the Lord your God. Excuse me. And the Lord stood beside him. He didn't shout beside him. The Lord stood beside him. And then he said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father and the God of Isaac. Again, he's connecting himself to these generations. The land on which you lie I will give to you. And to your offspring. And again, need to understand that Jacob is on the way, running away from his brother. He's running away from this land that God has promised, back to where Abraham came from, back to the land of Haran. And, and we'll wind up with other family members there. The land on which you lie I will give to you. And this is important in this story because I'm not going to give it to Esau. I'm going to give it to you. The blessing went to whom I wished the blessing to go to. I purposed for it to go to. And I'm going to bless you, and all the families of the earth shall be blessed in you and in your offspring. Again, a repetition of the promise to Abraham that all people would be blessed through him. Know that I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. God knows where he's going. In fact, God is not saying, don't leave, come back. God's saying, I'm going to go with you where you go. And I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob woke from his sleep, and he said, by the way, he's a pretty dense guy, kind of a tricky, crafty guy that doesn't get all the God stuff very often, but he gets it this time. Then Jacob said, surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. I didn't come here because God was here. I'm here and, and God came here to be with me. And I didn't know it. And Jacob was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is in none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. Before you go to the next slide, uh, you need to know, just as a little kind of, as, as, as a reader of the Bible, you might want to connect this piece. 
In John chapter 10, Jesus will say, I'm the good shepherd. And in the midst of that speech, he says, I am the gate. And the word he uses for gate there is intended for us to hyperlink back to this story. I am the place where heaven and earth meet. I am the gate. This is the gate of heaven. Skipping down to verse 19. He called that place Bethel. And that's significant because that word means house of God. Surely God was in this place and so he names the place Bethel. And then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in, this way, in the way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I can again that I can come again to my father's house in peace. And again he says if, but I want you to understand that God has always already promised that to him. And, and powerfully as we read the story we recognize that we, we know where the story is going. And so there, there isn't so much a, a statement here by Jacob of, I'm not sure whether this is going to happen because the person who wrote it knew it happened. And it's founded on that promise. And to a certain extent, Jacob is resting in what God has promised. And maybe the translation should be more like, since God is going to do these things. So that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I've set up for a pillar shall be God's house, place of God, house of God, Bethel. And all that you give me, I'm going to go away. And here the, the writer kind of foreshadows that we know what's going to happen while Jacob is away. Jacob leaves penniless and comes back a very wealthy man. That all that you give me, I will surely give one-tenth to you. I don't know if you knew that was at the end of this story. That there is this incredible relational event. That Jacob and God are going to meet here in this place. And God is going to open up heaven and in a very powerful sort of way. Say, as Jesus will be the fulfillment of God on earth. Jacob, you're part of what I'm trying to do here. You're a, a gateway for the world to see what God is doing. I want to be in relationship with you, and I invite you to that relationship. Later in Jacob's life, as he's coming back, he and God will meet again. And again, it's relational. They wrestle with each other, but it is intimate. It is close. They are impacted by each other. You're going to have to let me go and... and he touches his hip. This is extreme intimacy. But that relationship started at this place. I want to be with you. And I want you to be with me. And Jacob responds to that invitation of relationship by saying, of all that you give me. Notice, not all that I have. This is a future promise. There is nothing that Jacob has at this point except maybe the clothes that are on his back, maybe a, a sack of, of wine in a, in a, in a goatskin flask, and maybe, maybe a little coin in his pocket so that he can buy food on the way. But there's nothing. This is, I anticipate blessings from you because you've promised them. And I want to tell you that that blessing will be I will turn that blessing, return a tenth of all that you give me to you. I think there's two major emphases here. That, that he's ready to give from everything there is. 
He doesn't say, I've got this little part, I've got that little part, I've got this thing on the side, and that's what I want to give to you. He says, of everything I want to give. And when you're in relationship with someone, it kind of takes on that sort of sense of, I want to give all. I want to I include all in my relationship with them. Second, he recognizes that he's not the one who brings something to the table here. God is the one who is going to provide. God is the one who's going to see him safely there. God is the one who's going to, and I love that phrase, you're going to give me bread to eat and clothes to wear while I'm gone. You're going to take care of my basic needs. And how far beyond his basic needs is God going to care for him? But above all else, this scene so powerfully emphasizes the idea of relationship. That God has been in relationship with Abraham so that he can bless the world. And God has been in relationship with Isaac so he can bless the world. And now he comes to Jacob in, in, to a certain extent, one of the most profound scenes in all of the Old Testament. As intimate a scene maybe in the Old Testament as we see anywhere else. He's, he looks into heaven, and heaven comes to where he is, and there are people going back to heaven from there. And God invites him into that relationship. That sense of, you are mine, and I'm yours. I love you, and you love me. We are companions together. We are going to journey life together. We are going to be in a relationship that's not just a, oh, I guess I know who that is, but a relationship shares a relationship that's connected a relationship that is dependent knowing and loving God always carries us to a place of never being able to give enough I don't know if you've noticed but the more you get to know God the more you want to invest in him to a certain extent this is true in human relationships we develop a friendship, and maybe a friendship develops into a, a, an even day, deeper kind of companionship. Whether this is a, a, a marriage or just these kind of friends that we carry with us in all our life, and we have this opportunity to invest in them and give of ourselves to them, and we find it exhilarating. We kinda, the more we invest in that relationship, the more we want to add to that investment. Of course, that's nowhere more true than in a, a beautiful, loving, fulfilling Christian marriage. But it's also true in the way that we engage with our children. And it's just so powerful to stand at this stage in life and kind of see the way in which we invested. And we were just willing to give anything when they were children. And then they start to grow up and they, they want to separate away. They want to kind of become their own people. And this is part of what God designed them to do. And to a certain extent, we, we think, oh, they don't want to hear anything else from me. There's no way to invest a little more in them. We maybe even kind of yearn to be able to have a little more engagement with them, but then they start to grow up. This beautiful thing happens of a friendship and a relationship that they invest in you and you have the opportunity to invest in them. And in such a powerful way as we as children have parents who begin to age, we have that incredibly clear opportunity to recognize all that has been given to us 
and again to be able to give back to them. And it just seems like, I don't know about any of you, but as my mom is aging, I just find that I don't have as many opportunities to give back to her the way that she gave to me when I was a child. And I want to just give a little more and a little more. This beautiful scene of this widow who comes. She doesn't give everything out of an obligation. This isn't because thus said the Lord, I need to go and do this. This is about, there's nothing more important than me than the relationship I have with God. And so she doesn't have to be noticed by anybody. She doesn't have to make a big fanfare. She just wants to give, and she gives everything to God. And to a certain extent, we have to hear the echoes of the story from the previous week where we looked at that rich man who, when Jesus said, give everything, his face changed, and he walked away sad. And here this woman doesn't even know, need anybody to notice. She doesn't walk up to Jesus and say, Jesus, I, I know you're the great teacher. I know you're the great worker of miracles. Maybe you're even the Messiah. I just want you to notice that I'm putting everything in. She doesn't do that. She just wants to give. Knowing God and loving God makes us see everything else as nothing. Isn't it amazing how that works? I'm going to go back to that relationship with my parents. I can stack up all kinds of good things that I've got going on in my life. But right now, there are very few of them that are more important than time with mom and dad. And I'm really thankful for elders who've opened up for me to be able to do that a little more regularly. Um, it's hard to get there when you have Sundays invo involved in these kinds of things. But they've opened that up. And in reality... The more we come to know God, the more we're in that relationship. The more that we get a sense of how much He's done for us and how much He's given for us, everything else, everything else becomes smaller and smaller. I've got a great house. I've got some great, I enjoy planting and green stuff coming up all over the place. It's just wonderful. We got some new outdoor furniture and a new little fire pit thing for Christmas. And, and we love sitting out there. Friday night was wonderful. We're really glad we didn't wait till Saturday. Friday night was wonderful. It's a beautiful place. But you know what? It's nothing. It's nothing compared to the joy of knowing and loving God. I find it very interesting. And, and some of you I know are watching this series called The Chosen. And, and one of the themes, and by the way, don't watch The Chosen to understand your Bible. Read your Bible and let The Chosen kind of highlight some themes that you're seeing as you read the Bible. Get the primacy there. But one of the things that comes up that I really like, and there are things that I don't like, but one of the things that comes up that I really like is the theme that has run through the first two seasons is that every person he meets... He's always challenging them to step another step closer, to be a little more dependent. Do you really love God? We've got further to go. 
Are you going to understand where we're going? The answer is almost always no, they don't understand where they're going. But there's a little bit more. He asks for it firmly, but he does it very graciously and generously. That everything that God is to us will consistently make everything else as if it were nothing. And maybe the most, maybe most of all, knowing God and loving God causes us to take delight. You remember this passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 9, that God loves a cheerful giver. That knowing and loving God causes us to take delight and be cheerful when we have an opportunity to give back to the one who loves us and the one that we love. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but as your children were growing up and you got to give them a gift for a birthday or say Christmas or something like that, I remember getting the bicycle, the first bicycle, and just the way the world lit up. No longer is my independent mobility dependent on how fast I can walk or run. I can now have a vehicle. I can go further. And it just, ah! I'm, I've never given a pony. I have no idea what that's like. But a bicycle doesn't have to be fed. Somebody say amen. And, and so it's this incredible thing. And then there have been times where come to an anniversary and I've been able to find and it's seldom ever the jewelry. It's much more about the time and the effort and the conversation. And my heart is lifted because I've given a gift that has been welcomed and received and has affirmed the love and the relationship. And isn't it a joy? It's not a burden. It's being cheerful. It's laughing out loud because you have the opportunity to give to one you love. Last week we answered the question of the sermon series, Why Give? with the profound statement, because we trust God. We're going to give because we trust that, that we, first of all, can't outgive God and we trust that He is going to take care of us. Amen? This week our answer joins with everything from the first page of the Bible to the last page of the Bible. I give because we give because we love God. Amen? There is no one that I love more and no one that I want to invest myself and my goods and everything that I am in. And while we can see this giving is simply the idea of what I'm going to contribute to the church or maybe what I'm going to contribute to uh, people around me or what I'm going to contribute to mission works all around the world, various functions that may be where your money gets invested, whatever it is, is the opportunity to understand that the money is almost the minimum. Because what we get to give is ourself. What to get, we give to give is our passion and our time, our talents at times, but above all else, we get to see our lives intertwined with the good that God is doing. Amen? And it is always based on the idea, I love God so much, I know how much He loves me. How can I keep from singing? Because He's loved me so much. And a part of that opportunity to sing His praise is the idea that we can be people who, yes, give of our time and talents and passion and ourself, but also that we have the opportunity to give 
of those things that God has given to us, as Jacob said, of what sustains us, our income. So how can we be a people who let giving shape our love of God? Now, I want to be sure and say this is a little bit of a misnomer because in reality, it is our love for God that shapes our giving, right? But God has called us to give. We're going to talk more about that next week. But God has called us to give, and I want to say to you that He knows that the process of being a generous, financially generous person will help us grow in our love for God. We give because we love God, and in giving, our love for Him grows even more. Two points that I want to make very quickly. It helps our love for God grow because we are never forgetting that it is God who has given first. It is God who has given bountifully, and it is God who has given sacrificially out of His love for us. Giving always takes us back to the realization that God has given first. Can you just say that phrase with me real quickly? God has given first. And you notice, again, God doesn't just give a little. God doesn't give in response to us. God gives first. God gives bountifully. Somebody say amen. God gives sacrificially. Of himself, his one and only son, God gives. And he gives it out of love. And this process of, of saying, I'm going to step into giving. I'm going I'm to be obedient in that. I'm going to trust God in that. Allows us to be more and more aware all the time. You know, whatever I give back to God is just small compared to what he's given to me and in that loop our love for God grows can it grow without giving yes but giving can be a powerful element in how it grows and the rate at which we are transformed by it secondly I'm going to talk about transforming again When we let giving shape our love for God, we're letting our love of God in that giving transform our understanding of obedience in everything. If I can, very quickly, unpack this. Why do we obey in anything? Why do we obey in sexual purity? Why do we obey in telling the truth? Why do we obey in holding up the sanctity of life and avoiding the sin of murder? How do we obey in loving our neighbor? Why do we obey in loving our neighbor? If all we have to say is because God told me so, then we're living in this sense of obligation that is small compared to where God wants to lead us. We're living in this place sort of almost connected to the lie of Eden. Oh, no, 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 no. You're not going to die. You're going to be like God. We're living in this place where we think maybe my obedience can somehow or another manipulate God 
into what I want him to be. Because ultimately, what we want all of our obedience to be, obedience in everything and obedience in giving, is a reflection of I love God. Why am I not going to get involved in a relationship outside of my marriage? Yes, I love my wife, but also because I love God. Why am I going to love that person who doesn't dress the way or act the way or, or live in a way that in any way makes sense to me? I'm going to do it not because I have some sort of obligation. I'm going to love them because God has loved me. The more and more that we can see every aspect of our obedience to God, whatever that obedience may look like in your life, and the more that it can be transformed into, I'm doing this not out of obligation. I'm not doing this out of a sense of guilt. I am doing this because I love God. Kind of like the person who found the pearl. Nothing else makes any difference because I love God and that's what I want above all other things. Everything. Everything, every obedience needs to be a reaction of love. And I believe that practicing this discipline of giving from our finances can be a transformative effort that moves us deeper and deeper into the idea of I am obeying God because I love God. And what needs to be said behind that? Because I love God and I know He loves me. Amen? The invitation is always there. And we have to ask this question. Is treasure in heaven? Is the treasures of heaven? Is the God stuff something that is a goal for me and for you? And if you're here today, my guess is you've already answered that question, yes. If you've decided to watch us today, that question is yes. But I want to affirm pretty powerfully here that the greatest treasure of heaven will always be not a bigger house, not a better car, not an expanded income. None of those things are the great treasure. The great treasure is relationship, loving, steadfast, loving relationship with Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen? Now, now, and in eternity. If for whatever reason you're stuck in your, in your desire and in your journey to invest in and become filled up with this idea of the treasure of heaven, if you're stuck there, we would like to invite you to a conversation. We'd like to invite you even more into relationship. In relationship that we together can journey together to say what is it such that knowing God is everything, and everything else is nothing. Whatever it is that we can help you with in that process, you're free to ask anyone at any time. You're also free to come while we sing this song. If you're online with us, the number's been up there for a minute. 979-217-3300 is a number you can text us, and that can start that conversation. Because the truth is, that Jesus is always calling you to more, to the next movement, the next step in your journey.
And ultimately, that's because he loves you that much. And when we decide to take that step, ultimately, it is about, and I want to love you more. Wherever you are, I ask you to say, Jesus, one more step of love. Why don't you stand as we sing? When we walk with the Lord.